I heard a story about a man who, being a miser, tried to avoid a service charge by replacing a fluorescent light bulb in his office all by himself. The light bulb was seven feet long, and he smuggled it into his office, put it in place, and he had now to figure out a way to get rid of the old bulb. He lived in New York City, and so he figured he would just take it home with him on the subway and dump it into a dumpster near his subway stop. Well, he got on the train and put the bulb just like this. And as more and more people came on the train, guess what they did? They grabbed right onto that fluorescent light bulb, thinking it was a stanchion to grab onto when the train moved. More and more people came and more and more people grabbed this poor man's light bulb. Up came his stop. So what is he to do? He lets go of the light bulb and gets off the train. (laughs) Leaving a group of people holding on to what they think is a stanchion, only to be very surprised when (laughs) the last person is left holding and lets it go to crash to the floor. See, many people approach life holding on to what they think will hold them up, only to find that it is not secure has no stable foundation, and will not last. My hope today is to proclaim the one who will deliver you from the distress of the world, the distress of your own heart, and will give you hope this day. We are looking at the comfort of Christ. The title of my sermon is Taking Comfort in the Fulfillment of Christ's First Coming, Knowing He is Coming Again. I want you to catch that. We take comfort in the fact that Christ has already come, knowing He is coming again. The Christian's hope is definitely rooted in the first coming of Christ. It is rooted in His redemptive work on the cross. But too often we forget He's coming again. And so we have to recognize the prophecies that we see in this great book of Micah. Micah is oftentimes relegated to this time of the year when we put him on the shelf for 11 months and pull him off for scripture reading every so often. If you have never studied the book of Micah, it is a great study. Uh, Some have called it a study of Isaiah condensed in five chapters. It's a fantastic book. But when you look at the prophet of Micah, we have to recognize what is going on. He is giving prophecy to the southern kingdom, and he is speaking of the the coming trouble of Babylon and the the sin of Judah. Uh, the, the, The destruction of Assyria to the northern kingdom has already happened, and God is now setting his sights to his people in Judah who are continuing in their sin. Seeing what has happened to their brothers in the north, they have not changed their course. They continue to live according to their own purposes and their own way. And so Micah writes to warn the people of what is coming. 
And so a, a, just a, a quick journey through, you see one of the, the, the main reason why uh, in, in chapter 2 that God is coming for Judah is because of the leaders of Judah. You see that there is woe to those who devise iniquity. We're not just talking about those who get up and oops, tripped, fall. No, this is a planned way of life. Isaiah talks about these evildoers writing into law Ways to get rich off of the poor and innocent. That's what we're talking about here. They, they devise iniquity. They work out evil in, on their beds. At morning light, they practice it. So they can't wait to get up and do evil. We're not talking about those who are ignorant. We're talking about those who know God. And then you see in, in verse 6, the lying prophets... Those who prattle on lies and lead people astray, who tell them what they want to hear. It's very likely that this is the, 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 the text, or, or at least one of the texts that Paul had in mind with the itching ears text in 1 Timothy. Because the lying prophets itched the ears of Israel for years and years and years and led them to destruction. And chapter 4 is all about the millennial reign of Christ, the coming king. From from verse 6 all the way through the end of the chapter, you see how this king will reign. He assembles the lame. Now listen, the lame can't walk. The king gathers them to himself. Now the lame is a picture for all of those who are ruined in sin. That's us. We have to see that even in the Old Testament, God is doing the work of saving His people. He gathers the lame. He gathers the outcast. Those who have been pushed out. Those who have been afflicted. And He brings a remnant to Himself. God always has His remnant. And He works through this. And then He comes... You come to Isaiah, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. See, chapter 4 begs a question. Where is this ruler coming from? God gives the answer in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And so we are going to look at the reign of this king. We're going to look at the coming of the king, and we're going to look at the interval between his comings, and we're going to look at his final coming. And we begin by looking at the promise in verse 2, as I have just read. And the first word in Micah chapter 5, 2, is but. Martin Lloyd-Jones says we must thank God for the buts of the Bible. Because upon small hinges, large doors turn. What is this but talking about? Well, we're talking about a nation, Israel, being gathered together to do warfare. Because we look at, there's, there's a siege, there's, there's the strike, the judging of Israel with a rod on the cheek. We're talking about a strict judgment. This is because of their sin. But where is this king coming from? Out of Bethlehem. Now, this is very interesting. We're going to take our time walking through this. This is going to be the majority of our text this morning. We will look at verses 3 through 5, but we'll do that quickly. I want you to see the promise 
And, and just how we tend to look at this and then move on, there is a world here that we must rest on. What God does with this promise is important. He has just talked about in chapters 2 and 3 the corrupt leaders, the people who are loving their sin. They get up. They can't wait to practice it. The promise of the king who will come, who will rule with an iron fist, an iron scepter. But then you come to this but. We're not there yet. We're not there yet in the glory of this kingdom. The time is coming when the Messiah will be born. Now, I want you to look at verse 2. I did a research paper when I was in, at Liberty, in undergrad. How did the people miss Jesus Christ, the Messiah, when all the prophecies in the Old Testament were, were clear, pointing to this one man? How did they miss Jesus? Uh, there, there are several reasons, and, and the heart of the answer is this. They had no faith. They, they were looking for what they wanted, not for what God had planned. But a, a more uh, practical reason is because of how the prophecies are given. If you read verse 2, You, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Well, you see in this one verse, in the same sentence, both his first and second advent, his birth, but also his reign. You see this all throughout the Old Testament prophets. And so they just did not skillfully and carefully enough determine the advent of Christ. They wanted one advent. Everything at once. And that's how the the prophets wrote. Because the prophets wrote of what they did not understand. Of what they could not yet see. But when God brought to fulfillment what they wrote, there was no doubt who this Jesus was. So the place is given Bethlehem. Now Bethlehem was known by two names. The first, obviously, is Bethlehem, city of David. But the second is Ephrathah. It was called this actually in the early days of Jacob. This is the place where Rachel dies. And he buries Rachel. So being in the tribe of Judah, this was great honor. It was great honor because when Jacob blessed his children, he blessed Judah in this way. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Well, what is this? This is a declaration from God through Jacob that the Messiah will come through the line of Judah. In our Advent readings with our children, we, we, we read, uh, there's a little... Uh, Four books put together through Jotham's journey. It's very, very good. We enjoy them. Uh, we're reading Bartholomew's passage this year, and Bartholomew is in uh, the community of Qumran, and they find out that Bartholomew is from the tribe of Judah. And he went from going to the visitor's table all the way to the table of honor with the rabbi. Well, why is that? Why would they do that? Because Judah 
That was the tribe where the Messiah came. And if there was to be a hierarchy, Judah was at the top. Not Reuben, the firstborn, but Judah. And so as much of an honor as it was to be in the tribe of Judah, there was an order to these things. Every tribe was made up of clans, and every clan was made up of families. And in this tribe was the city of David, very small, Bethlehem. Honorable because of David the king, but small. And when Herod was searching for this coming king, he asked the wise men where he would be born. Now, understand, Herod had the title king of Israel, but he did not know where the true king of Israel would come from. But the wise men who came from Persia, no doubt informed and educated through the Jews who were there during their exile, knew. They knew where this king would be born. And they quote Micah 5.2 to this ignorant ruler. I want you to think with me for a few minutes about the amazing process that God took to bring all of this to pass. Because God knew when he gave this prophecy to Micah, whom he would choose to be the mother of Jesus, whom he would choose to be the earthly father of Jesus, and where they would be living at the time of the conception. Now, if it was me, I would have said, okay, make sure those two get to Bethlehem before they meet. Not God. Not God. It would have been a lot easier my way, I think. But see, God rarely does things according to our plans or what makes sense to us. Rather, He will take the most outlandish, far-fetched ideas and make them reality. With the authority of words... God brought this world into existence. Never lose sight of the power of God's word. Let there be light and there was light. It obeyed instantly. Notice that all of creation obeys God except for one man. The one created in his image is the one that rebelled. And when man chose to rebel, of all the choices God could have made, redemption was the path he chose. Who but a good, gracious God would choose that plan? Using an ark, a flood, and a faithful old man, God saved the race of men. God called a wrinkly old man out of a pagan religion with a barren wife to be the father of many nations. But he did not give this child to Abraham until he was 100 years old. Outlandish? Yes, absolutely. True? Undoubtedly. He brought Israel out of Egypt. He did not bring Israel out with military power. There was no outside military force to come inside to bring out the slaves. No, he used a fearful old man shaking in his sandals with a staff. He used ten plagues and he used water. 
all in a miraculous way, to set his people free from the tyranny of Egypt. When establishing his covenant with the king of Israel, he did not choose the first king. He chose the second king because he rejected the first. He chose the man who was youngest in his family, not the oldest. The one who was noblest of heart, not noblest in strength. When sending Jonah to Assyria, what did he use? He used a storm, a whale, a worm, and a vine. God will take what seems to be the most outlandish and make them reality. And that is exactly what he does here when he brings Jesus Christ into the world. I want you to consider this. Because when Mary was announced by Gabriel that she was going to have the Messiah, first of all, the bravery of Mary to not run and scream and hide and fret. Let it be done as you said to your servant. Wow. But she's in the wrong place. Joseph is in the wrong place. How would Joseph and Mary get to Bethlehem where God had prophesied the Messiah would be born? Did he send a dream? Well, he did use dreams, but not this time. There was no dream. What about an angel? He could have sent an angel as he'd already done to both of them. No. No angel. What about a prophet like Micah or Isaiah to come and stand and say, you two need to get moving? No. No prophet. How about a rabbi's message to explain Micah 5 too? I mean, these two knew who their child would be. Hey, you know, Mary, this is about our kid. We better get moving to Bethlehem. Nope. No exposition. What did God use? He used an arrogant, vain, self-righteous Roman Caesar who wanted to see how many people were in his empire. A census. And so, in a very real way, God took the whole world and shook it to get two people where they needed to be for one birth. Let this have a better view of your problems in this world. Let this have a redemptive view of all that is happening to you. You cannot see the purpose in this moment. But God knows exactly where you need to be and why you need to be there. He's got the bigger plan. He's got the bigger picture. He knows what he's doing. Do you trust him? Will you obey? Will you follow? Will you go? So we see here... God uses small things to accomplish His big plan and purpose. Let's look at something that takes place during Jesus' ministry. I mean, Jesus could have been known as Jesus of Bethlehem because He was born in Bethlehem. But He never was known as Jesus of Bethlehem in His ministry. What was He known as? Jesus of Nazareth. Now, again, if I'm God, terrifying thought, I know. 
if I'm God, I'm making sure the title Jesus of Bethlehem sticks. Pay attention. I mean, don't we want it to be clear to the people who Jesus is? We want everything to point to the Old Testament prophecies in a clear, no-holds-barred way. I mean, that's how we would think. And why not have the angel appear to all men and say, Hey, by the way, this is the one of whom God prophesied in Genesis 3.15. Pay attention. See, that's how we think God should have made it clear. But the reality is this. God made it abundantly obvious who Jesus Christ is. See, this is why people argued among themselves in John 7, 42, where they say, has not Scripture said that the Christ will come from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? Well, they knew that. But here's Jesus of Nazareth. See, someone who would have been thoughtful would have said, hey, look, if you are the Messiah, you should have been born in Bethlehem, right? Do you think Jesus would have withheld that information from them? No, because... Jesus of Nazareth, they make assumptions because they, in their finite knowledge, think they know. But here's some things I want you to recognize. There are two reasons why God did not do as I have said. But first of all, notice, God made it obvious. First, he sends Gabriel to appear to a virgin, Mary, to tell her that she will be with child and she would have a baby. I remember as a young man, Mark Lowry saying of his mother, she she told him all the time, if anyone knew Mary was a virgin, Mary knew it. What a thought. And beloved, the very fact that Mary was silent at the cross tells you everything you need to know. Because no mother will allow her child to go to execution when they know they are innocent. But Mary knew that a sword would pierce her soul. And she knew that she needed her son to go to the cross to redeem her own soul. He appeared to Joseph through Gabriel again. He affirmed Mary's chastity. And Joseph took her as his wife. Oh, and he also sent some guy by the name of John the Baptist to prepare the way of the Lord. And prepare, he did. He anointed Jesus with power. People knew Jesus was different. He didn't walk around saying, well, let's get together and have a powwow and we'll figure this out. No, Jesus came along and he said, this is what God says, do it or perish. Oh, where does that authority come from? This guy's different. Jesus worked miracles no one had the power to do in the history of the world. The reason the, the multitudes followed Jesus around was because they were one of the be one of the next people that saw the great miracle. Hey, where were you on Thursday? I was being fed by Jesus miraculously with bread and fish. It was pretty cool. Hey, did you hear what happened the other day? Jesus told a lame guy to get up and walk, and he walked, and you and I know this guy. Look at him, he's walking around. Bartimaeus is over there, he's working at the shop, he can see. He's not blind anymore. Did you see Lazarus? I was at his funeral on Tuesday, and now he's walking around. 
Jesus did miracles no one had ever done before. But the miracle that points to Jesus Christ being the Messiah is that he went to the cross, he died paying the penalty of our sin, and oh, by the way, he rose again. That is the miracle that we see. How much more obvious does God need to make it? When we put it that way, we see it's pretty obvious. But here's a second reason why God doesn't just write everything in the sky. Salvation comes by faith. Salvation comes by faith. Salvation for Israel and Judah before the Babylonian captivity, the remnant were required to be saved by faith. You and I are required to be saved by faith. See, Bethlehem was little. And yet here we have the prophecy of God sending the greatest ruler who will ever live to be born in her streets. In a barn, a stable, because there was no one in the room, no one in the, in the inn willing to give up their room for a young woman who needed to give birth. That tells you a lot about the state of Israel at the moment. See, God requires faith for our salvation. He doesn't want people running around saying, I agree, I agree. No. We must agree in our mind, but will our heart believe? Will it submit? Will it surrender? Is that a description of you this morning? Have you called out to God to have mercy on you? Have you bowed the knee to serve Christ as King? See, the fact that Bethlehem was little among the thousands, what this teaches us is that there were many, many, many more clans who would have been in a higher honor to receive the Messiah in her town before Bethlehem. And yet it was upon Bethlehem God gave this honor. The one that is mentioned in verse 2 is the Messiah. And the purpose of his birth is to be ruler. That word ruler means to govern or be in charge of. And it refers here to the millennial reign of Christ. So you have the first advent, the born in Bethlehem. And you have now the second advent, his reign upon the earth in the millennial kingdom. It's how the people, like I said already, got the prophecies of Jesus confused. But don't think that they didn't have enough to put together what would happen. Does Isaiah 53 ring a bell to anybody? You know, Bill Aiken uh, told me once that uh, in, in the Jewish synagogues where he sometimes will frequent, when they read through the book of Isaiah every year. Guess what chapter they skip? Isaiah 53. Why is that? Because it is plain as day what Christ had to do to save us. And God was clear in his word. But what's next is the incredible statement that the Messiah is eternal. His goings forth are from old. That speaks of ancient or eternal. And he is from everlasting. That word everlasting is a, is a phrase that in the Hebrew went sunset to sunset. It never ended. The idea here is he's never been, there has never been, nor will there ever be a time where Christ has not existed. Since the creation of this world, Christ has been holding it together. Now, now here's a thought for you at Christmas. 
Christ, as a one-day-old baby, guess what he's doing? He's holding this world together. And Christ, in this very moment, is holding this world together. There will never be a moment where, Christ, where this world exists that, God, that Christ is not holding it together. He has been. Now, every once in a while, I run into somebody who likes to play the game, Jesus never declared himself God. Now, did Jesus ever come right out and say, I am God? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Now, he did not do it like, hey, y'all, I'm God. He didn't do that. He spoke the language of the people to help them know exactly who he was. Let's look at some of these passages. Sitting with a woman at a well. An outcast. A woman whose moral character was so poor she was not allowed to draw water with the other women in town. And Jesus waits for her to deliver this incredible news. He's teaching her how to properly worship God. And she, she just is like, okay, listen, first of all, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. We're not supposed to be talking. You're a rabbi. I'm an outcast. We're not supposed to be talking. You're a man. I'm a woman. We're not supposed to be talking. But I'm going to ask you a question anyway. The question is, I know the Messiah is coming, but where do we look for him? And in the plain language, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Yeah, Jesus came right out and told people who he was. Because now you see that the people knew the Messiah was God. On the, the, uh, the one who is ancient and everlasting. Well, that only God is eternal and everlasting. So they knew the Messiah would be God. And now Jesus is saying that I am the Messiah. Well, what's he claiming? In the next chapter, Jesus tells the Pharisees that they search the Scriptures because they think eternal life is found in the Scriptures. He then states that the Scriptures testify of himself. What he says next is earth-shattering for the Pharisees, and now you have the beginning of the conflict. You are not willing to come to me that you may have life. Now, now that word life is eternal life. Where does Jesus get the idea that he has the authority and the power to give anyone eternal life? The fact that he's God. And he spoke to the Pharisees in a way that they would have known what he was saying. Oh, maybe it's not clear enough, so let's let's keep going. John chapter 8. He has another debate with the Pharisees. Now he gets real up close and personal and hammers on a very um, loved doctrine and person. See, they thought that it was enough to be saved because you had Abraham as your father in your human lineage. But Jesus tells the people that if anyone keeps his word, they'll never taste death. What's that have to do with Abraham? Well, nothing really. It has everything to do with Jesus. Do you see how the, the Pharisees were focused on the wrong person? 
And, and so Jesus here continues, and, and they say, you're not even 50 years old yet, and you're talking like you saw Abraham. And Jesus says these words, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, ego me, I am. And they pick up rocks to stone him. Not because they didn't like him, but because he was claiming to be God. And that, that rendering, ego me in the Greek, is the same rendering where God tells Moses, I am who I am in Exodus 3.14. They knew exactly what he was saying. By the way, all the I am statements in John... I am the light of the world, I am the bread of life, I am the resurrection and the life. All ego me. All telling people, this is how you know I'm God. No one else can do these things for you but me. But then Jesus goes on to foretell his redemptive death and burial and victorious resurrection in just many places. Luke 18.31 is the next one we're coming up to in our, our journey through Luke. And he tells his disciples that he's going to be delivered to the Gentiles. Meaning, the Romans, whom everybody hated. I mean, you're going to be delivered to the Gentiles. He's going to be mocked, insulted, and spit upon. And he goes on to say that they will whip and kill him. And it's like at this moment, the disciples just shut off their ears and go right in the morning. Because he tells them in plain language, but in three days I'll be raised again. Right over their heads. They didn't grasp what he was saying. What he was telling the disciples is that as evil as men were, and the Romans were evil men. They loved torture. That's what the Colosseum, I mean, you have a picture there. But they will do their best to rid the world of Jesus. But death has no mastery over him. Why? He's God. Yet in another dispute with the Pharisees, Jesus turns with these learned men of the law and he uses Psalm 110. The most quoted psalm in the New Testament is Psalm 110. And and so he goes, now he picks a fight with the Pharisees. He walks up and he asks them a loaded question. What do you think of the Christ? Whose son is he? And they just give the answer that they gave at their, uh, at their, their course where they got you know, their, their badges and their, their plaques that hung on the wall, their ordination, so to speak. Well, he's the son of David. Oh, okay, guys. Hey, uh, look at Psalm 110. How is it then that um, he will then say, the, the David say in the Spirit, meaning he wrote the psalm under the Holy Spirit, why does he call his own son, Lord, when he says, Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, the son, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. I'll wait. Nothing. And that was it. They were humiliated for the last time. And that's where they go and they find Judas to betray him. See, the Pharisees knew the implication of Jesus' words. If they say what they had to say to be biblically consistent, they had to say that the reason David calls the Messiah Lord is because he's God. 
And they knew that Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah. Therefore, they had to know that he would say, Aha! So who am I? And in their rejection of Jesus, now notice how they compartmentalize this. They don't, in their mind, reject God. They're rejecting Jesus who claims to be God. But they don't take time to think through, if we're wrong about this, we've rejected God himself. All of this to say that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah, prophesied of millennia past, but he existed long before those events took place, and he will exist long after they are done. And he will exist long after today because he is God. And he has secured redemption for you and I. So the, the application, beloved, is very simple and yet incredibly profound. Because Jesus is God, he deserves, and in fact, he demands, you worship and your submission and your allegiance. Now, it it, it does not lost on me that perhaps for the first time you are hearing Jesus Christ spelled out in this way at Christmas time. And maybe for you, this is the first time you have ever been told that you need to worship the, the child who grew up to one day be king. And so we have this foolish notion that Jesus was born to make our lives easier to make us happy, to relieve us from stress, and all of the the fill-in-the-blanks. Jesus was born to save you from the wrath of God because of your sin. And he was born to bring the greatest glory to God through himself. Again, he does it through ridiculous means. Why would God send his son to be put on a cross at the hands of some of the most evil men who have ever lived? Because God knows how to take evil and use it for good. This was his plan. When we hear the prophecy in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice forever and ever. Now, listen, we have to recognize that Jesus Christ came to deliver us from our sin, but he is returning again one day to reign over all the world and over all men. And so my my point here is to help you see that your knee will bow. Your tongue will confess. The question is not if. It is when. Will you bow your knee now and confess your, your, the Christ is Lord now and be saved for all eternity? Or will you do it on the last day before Christ judges you and you spend eternally, eternity in the lake of fire? So we have seen this promise. Now look at the provision. We're going to go through these last verses fairly quickly. See, verses 3 and 4, this, these speak of the interval between the first advent, so once the ascension of Christ takes place, now verses 3 and 4 kick in, before his return. 
Therefore he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. He shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. I think I gave you three and four. It's, it's verse three is the interval because verse four is the millennial reign. But that provision, that, that verse 3 is the interval, verse 4 speaks of the millennial reign where Christ himself will stand and give truth to the people and he will feed his flock. That word feed means to shepherd. That's what a king's job is to do, is to shepherd. Knowing his deity, it should be no surprise to us that he will do this in the strength of the Lord. The people shall abide, meaning they will remain or dwell because of the perfect rule of the Messiah. But look at verse 5. Just the first part, the first line. And this one shall be peace. Why is it that we have such an emphasis of peace at Christmas time? Because that is what Christ brought to us when he was born. This is monumentally important. Because we live in a world that has little peace. There is much fear, but little peace. There is little peace because there are a few people who know Jesus Christ. And one day, all men will see that true peace only comes through him. And and he will bring that earth in finality, but that is not yet that day. And so we wait. But as we wait, I point you to the one who was prophesied about in Isaiah 9.6. He is the Prince of Peace. He is the Prince of your peace. And it is no wonder that there, there's, there's nor an accident that the, or coincidence when the angels came and they pronounce Jesus Christ is born. They, in Luke 2.14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. Why? He's the Prince of Peace. He brings peace with him. Jesus came. He was born of a virgin. He grew up under the rigors of the law, fulfilled every aspect of the law, went to the cross. And in Colossians 1, 19 and 20, Paul wrote, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. Listen to verse 20. And by him reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace, how? Through the blood of the cross. We do not just have peace with God because of what Jesus has done. Although God could have set it up that way, we must notice that we have peace with God because of who Jesus is. Ephesians 2.14, He Himself is our peace. Beloved, listen to me very carefully. We have peace Because we have Jesus. If we don't have peace, we need to look at the fact, do we have Jesus? A couple of applications here. There is no shadow of a doubt that the whole Bible proclaims the truth that the Messiah would come and not only be anointed with God's power, but would be God himself. From Genesis 3.15, the first prophecy of the Messiah coming, that he would crush the head of the devil... You have to see that the Messiah had to be stronger than the devil. Had to be. Adam and Eve, in in perfect humanity, in pure humanity, 
were overcome by the devil who was stronger than them. So the Messiah had to come. He had to be a, a representative of mankind. So he had to be man, but he had to be greater than man. He had to be God. And so in order for God to save man, he needed the perfect sacrifice on their behalf. And so he sent God. He sent Jesus Christ himself, God, wrapped in human flesh. We will never wrap our minds around that incredible miracle of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Therefore, if you are here this morning, and Christmas is nothing more than gathering with family, food, having to buy gifts, exchanging them, having good time with family and friends, but if you're just, if that's all, if that's all Christmas is, you're missing the point. The point of Christmas is not all of the busyness that surrounds a holiday, which is much. The point of Christmas is looking to Jesus for salvation from the wrath of God because of your sin. And Christmas reminds us that we are comforted by Christ's first coming, therefore we take comfort in His second. Secondly, there is no other way to salvation. If God would take pain to send His Son in human flesh... Then what kind of a God is he if you can also get to heaven through Hinduism or Buddhism or any other religion? No, there is one way to heaven. Jesus himself was equally emphatic when he says that he is the exclusive way to heaven. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, everyone is kept out who doesn't do this. No one gets to the Father except how? Through me. And I I preached that verse at Tony Ritchie's funeral. And culture hates these kind of statements. They want, the, they want the Jesus who's always helping people, healing people, giving people what they need and what they want. But culture doesn't know how to handle the Jesus that says, no, 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 you don't get to heaven except through me. Well, why don't they want that Jesus? Because culture wants their own way. And until the world recognizes that they don't get to heaven apart from Jesus, they will die in their sin. And until you recognize you don't get to heaven without Jesus, you will die in your sin. And so Christmas is such a wonderful holiday, but do not miss its point that God sent Christ to save you. And finally, there is no other way to have peace but through Jesus Christ. This is true for the Christian and this is true for the non-Christian. The non-Christian must submit and come to Christ through faith because of his work on the cross. But dear Christian, listen to me very carefully. You need God as much today as you needed Him before your salvation. You cannot take the mountain of stress in this world and swim through it on your own strength and then think you're going to lay down at night and have peace. No. We have peace because of Christ. See... I remember as a kid watching the Miss America pageants and what, what, do, what would you love to see? What would be the greatest accomplishment of your life? And they all said the same ridiculous statement, world peace. How are you, little Missy, in a bikini bathing suit going to bring about world peace? <laughs> world peace comes through one, Jesus Christ. One. And he will bring world peace. But it will not be as people want it to be. He comes from heaven on a horse, eyes burning on fire, 
robes whiter than snow, with names that we can't even comprehend written on him. Words coming out of his mouth that strike man's heart like a sword. He will bring peace, but he also brings destruction. Those who rebel against him who are his enemies will not stand against him. If you think of Jesus as a little baby in the manger, and that's all you ever think of him as, you've missed the point. Because that baby grew up under the rigors of the law, perfect in all that he did, pleasing God, went to a cross, paid the penalty of sin, rose again, and one day will come back to deal with your sin if you have not repented. Why in the world am I preaching this message at Christmas? Because we have to see, it's not my message, it's God's message. We need more of this message at Christmas time. Our country would be better off for more preachers to preach. Christ is coming again, and we know that because he's already come. Take comfort, beloved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you for your sustaining grace. I ask that you would comfort our hearts today. And this week, I pray for those who this morning have much to think about. I pray that every knee will bow on earth here in this room as they are now responsible with the message to come to Christ in faith because of what he, what he has done, who he is. And so, Father, I pray you would be kind. But, Father, for those of us who are here and, and we know, we know there are areas we must grow in. Would you give us the sight of Christ in all of his glory coming again? That we would overcome. That we would set our eyes upon him. Have a steeled resolve and never be moved. And that we would do great things for the kingdom and the strength of the Lord upon whom we wait. In Christ's name I pray.